Yes. Uh, I give God thanks. Um, before I go on to our message, I just wanted to um, share with you um, some thoughts um, surrounding um, the festive season because this year, unusually, I've had um, been either been um, listening or engage with people who um, have got their different perspective about um, Christmas. And most of it was, oh, right, um, Jesus wasn't born on the 25th of December. I'm sure every one of us has heard it at some point, yeah? And, and those who are perhaps a little bit more informed, oh, it's a pagan, you know, day. So therefore, right, yeah, we are, um, those who are Christians or those who are seeking to serve the true and living God shouldn't, um, you know, celebrate um, Christmas on the 25th of December. Um, furthermore, the, um, the Christmas tree and Christmas lights, it's all, you know, about paganism. Um, right. And even up to yesterday at Barley Loves, <laughs> at the um, Beulah Hill, uh, where we do the sorting, um, again, there are people who was, you know, expressing similar sort of opinion. Uh, so, but why would I, yeah, why do I, I, mean, I can't speak for anybody else, but why do I still, yeah, celebrate um, Jesus' birth on the 25th of December, right? And why do I, why do my family, yeah, still have a Christmas tree with Christmas light during the 12 days, right, yeah, of celebration, right? Two simple explanations I will give. First of all, the 25th of December, how did it come about? Most times the people who are pushing these ideas haven't even done any research how we came to actually celebrate Jesus' birthday, right? My little bits, yeah, of inquiries show me that it was a result of a missionary, right, going to a pagan culture, pagan community, right? And what he discovered was that the people of that particular culture, that community, would on, what was it, yeah? The day when, I can't remember the exact term, the day when, yeah, yeah certain parts of Europe, including us, go from shorter days to longer, you know, hours of daylight. And as was happening sort of our many ancient um, culture, people would somehow deify anything to do with, right, the natural world. So they would worship the sun in the sky. That they saw, right, as the power behind life and death. And on the 25th or thereabouts, right, they would actually worship the S-U-N, right, uh, for giving them life, for giving them hope. So what this monk realizes, using a bit of wisdom, that if he went in and just says, right, right, you should no longer engage in worshiping the sun. You should no longer go in there. He knew that straight away he would probably get a lot of resistance. Using a bit of wisdom, he says, right, instead of focusing on the S-U-N, you know, focus on the S-O-N. Right, and from you know tradition and the best evidence so far, that's how we 
came to actually celebrate Jesus' birthday on the 25th. Right. And we in Britain shouldn't have an issue with it because this year, our last year, right, was the passing of our dear queen. Right? We always had the official birthday celebration of the queen in the month of June. Although her actual birthday was in April. And the reason being, normally in England, we get more rain in April perhaps than any other month. So it only seems common sense or practical reason why you would actually put the date back to a month of the year when it's more likely to be dry. Although we know that there's no guarantee in England <laughs> of ever getting sun. So, yeah. And with regard to the Christmas tree, right? Yeah. Unlike this one, most Christmas trees are what color? Green. Green, right? It was always, you know, from the coniferous um, tree where green, right, was symbolic, right, of the gospel, right, which never fades. Green was constant, right? You know, the trees that don't shed their leaves, they're green, right? That was what the green Christmas tree symbolized. And the light... Very obvious. The light on the Christmas tree, right, was God's Son coming into the world as the light of the world, right? And if you're still struggling to sort of make the connection, right, yeah, as I said to one, um, two sisters last night where I was at, yeah, where the church I was at, you know, celebrating um, New Year's Day, I said, what is the most recognizable symbol of the Christian faith? The cross, right? But did you know for the first four centuries, the Christians did not actually um, use the cross, right, in any shape or form, right, to celebrate or to mark or to acknowledge Jesus' death? That was something that emerged from about the fourth century. And the reason being, Understandable because the cross historically was associated, right, right, with, yeah, something that was horrendous, something that was shameful. Someone, as our pastor, he was mentioning last night, you know, right, they actually not only set out to murder Jesus, but to humiliate him, right, to more or less look, present him as being the worst of all criminals, right? That was before Jesus died on the cross, right? Yeah, they're associated with the cross. But yet, Paul says, right? Yeah, right. The cross, right, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But unto us, it is the power of God to salvation, and during the Iron Curtain days, the way in which Christians would somehow, you know, more or less acknowledge each other publicly was by subtly using, right, you know, symbols of the cross. So, for instance, there was one um, army general, and Billy Graham had actually came to visit the city. And he knew that the authorities were looking at him and would try to find ways in which to catch him out Right, yeah, to say, right, there he is, 
right? Still practicing a religion that is now being prohibited. And what he did as Billy Graham was stood up one day, right, at this memorial. He came up next to Billy Graham, took his umbrella, and just in front of him there in the gravel, just marked a cross. Billy Graham knew straight away that this man was a brother. This was a fellow believer, right? And he just walked away quietly, right? So God, as he said in his word, yeah, is able, as in the, in the case of Joseph, you remembered, when he said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, yeah, but God meant it for good, right? And last, on this point, right, before we start actually, whatever is our belief, pointing fingers at other people about that is pagan, that is godless, right? We need to look in our own culture, in our own society, in our own, right, journey to life. Right? Because if you unpack a lot of what we do, it has pagan origin. So, Rebecca, pick on you again. America, Thanksgiving, it has nothing to do with Bible, it has nothing to do with Christianity. It has to do with paganism that goes back yeah, to the east of England. <laughs> That's where Thanksgiving originated from, right? And all of us, I'm sure, have been to wedding ceremonies, right? The entire wedding ceremony, right, you won't find it laid out in the Bible. It has pagan origin. This has, this is not... <laughs> Something that you will find anywhere, right? This is a show who I am, you know, bequeathed to my wife. But it is something which came from paganism. So, right, before we start choice those, let's look at our own journey, our own self, and see that it's not entirely, completely free. Anyway, give God thanks. That's why I'd share that with you. <laughs> right. And so let me just pray and then move into what the Lord has actually laid in my heart today. Lord, just give you thanks once more for another year, right? Lord, you invested last year 365 days in our lives. But yet, Lord, at the same time, we must not lose sight of the fact that you deserve a return on your investment. I just pray, Lord, right, that as we look back, we reflect, right? We will realize that it is because of your mercy and your grace that you have kept us throughout the year. And as we come into 2023, Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you will continue to guide us. You will continue to uphold us by your mighty hand. We don't know what happened. We don't even know what's going to happen in the next five minutes, let alone the next week, month, and year. But, Lord, we know, as has been said, right, all power is given unto you. Right? And Lord, we know you will guide us. And even when we fall, you will pick us up, Lord. And will not leave us. Right? Yeah? Come underground or wherever, so to speak. So Lord, be with us. And as Lord, come to share this word with you. I just pray, Lord, that you will be glorified. You will be magnified. And that every heart, every person here will be blessed. Yeah? And will be encouraged. As I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, Giovanni, right? Yeah, may not have heard that name before, but Giovanni was a teacher of Michelangelo. I'm sure you've all heard of Michelangelo, even if only he used to follow ninja um, turtles, <laughs> right? Yeah? And Michelangelo, yeah, was only 14 years old when he came to Giovanni. But it was already obvious that he was enormously gifted. Giovanni was wise enough to realize that gifted people 
are often tempted to coast rather than grow. And therefore, he kept trying to pressure Michelangelo to take his artwork seriously. One day, he came into the studio to find Michelangelo toying with a piece of sculpture far beneath his abilities. Giovanni grabbed the hammer, stomped across the room, and smashed the work into tiny pieces and shouted, Michelangelo, talent is cheap. Dedication is costly. And even too often as Christians, we are found coasting through life by simply going through the motions. Going through the motions of being a Christian is cheap. Dedication to Jesus is costly. When Jesus was on earth, Did he join in any celebration during the month of December? Recently, the Jewish people celebrated yeah, the Feast of Dedication. This ran from the 18th of December until the 26th of December. It is otherwise known as the Festival of Lights or Anukkah and lasts for eight days. I find it interesting that Jesus often participated in non-biblical situations. So there he was at the Feast of Dedication. And this was added to all the other feasts, right, that the Jews would participate at various times, right? Yeah, but it was not in the Bible. It was not mandated anywhere in scriptures, right? But yet it was something that Jesus participated. So let us actually... Um, read about Jesus actually, you know, participating in Hanukkah, yeah, the Feast of Dedication from the book of John. John chapter 10, verse 22 to 23. Have you got that? Pastor? There it is. At that time, the Feast of Dedication, otherwise as the Jews commonly call it, Hanukkah, took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Right, as I said, around December. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Right. So we see there, Jesus participate in the feast of dedication. Now, we're asking, what is the feast of dedication? What does it represent? This feast was established before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And we know from the Biblical and historical records that during the time of Jesus, of, 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 um, yeah, during the time of Jesus, Judea was occupied by the brutal and oppressive Roman Empire. So at the time, you know, Jesus is on earth. We know the Romans, right, were the imperial power. For Jesus to have actually gone to the feast of dedication was a bit of a risk because why? And you'll explain, and you'll understand the reason why in a second, right? Yeah, So it was a bit of a risk going to this feast at the time when the Romans right, were right, the imperial power across the then known world. Right? So it kind of in some sense, to me at least, says, right? right? Jesus was prepared to identify sometimes 
with those who are under tyranny and oppression. We're oftentimes trying to portray Jesus as being this very neutral, indifferent figure, right? That wasn't concerned about, right? Yeah, the political, right? And other issues of his day. Certainly not. He was concerned, but it's the way he was concerned, right? His methods was very different, right? From, right? Many of those who would seek to use, um, you know, arm and military means in which to challenge, right? Oppression and tyranny. But as a person who was of Jewish, of Hebrew origin, right? He would have clearly from his own faith, his own right, culture, right, identified and would be, right, yeah, very much someone who would, right, yeah, be opposed to any kind of tyranny, any kind of oppression. And you even see this even the way in which he sometimes, quite often times, challenged the religious leaders, right? Like, for instance, on one occasion he says, right, yeah, you use the law, right, to oppress people, to exploit people. But yet the law is based upon love. It's based upon justice. It's based upon truth. That is what God intended the law to be. The, God, the law was not intended to use, right, to oppress, to exploit, right, to devalue, to dehumanize people. But that was what the religious Jesus used to do. So there it was. Jesus was making a clear statement, right, as the son of God, but also, right, as a Hebrew, right, yeah, that's, he was also one who cared, right, about justice, cared about, right, oppression, cared about tyranny. Yeah? Now, the Anuka story, yeah, as I mentioned, was about defiance, mainly against religious persecution. And it occurred, the reason why you don't perhaps you don't hear, read about it in the Bible, you read about the celebration of Hanukkah, but you don't actually read about actually what took place. It was because it happened during what we call the intertestamental period. Right? right? And this is the historical period between the book of Malachi, which we covered recently, yeah, and the book of Matthew, and lasted approximately 400 years. Right? And just for, you know, those of you who would like to know, there's two times traditionally that says when God was silent or God did not, right? Yeah? Yeah? Directly, yeah? Communicate with his people. That was during the 400 years in Egypt and during the 400 years during the intertestament period, right? Until a few years ago, I knew very little about Hanukkah. But in my exploration, I found that Hanukkah is a celebration of the resistance against tyranny, right? And the miraculous intervention of God. And here's a summary of the events. It was prophesied in the book of Daniel, right? Remember we covered the book of Daniel um, not so long ago. We did a series. I think, was it earlier this year or last year? Last year? Yeah, yeah last year. Yeah. During our time, we actually learned that it was prophesied that Alexander the Great would bring the world under one government and culture called Hellenism. After Alexander's early death, 
four of his generals scrambled for power, and Alexander's kingdom was divided into four regions by four of his generals. Just read a little, um, you know, short reference about this in um, Daniel chapter 8, verse 21, 22. Right? I remember the goat is symbolic of Alexander. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, that means it's referred to the, the death of Alexander, in place of which four others arose. Four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. Right? So Alexander only lived until about 32 or thereabouts and died. Right? But there was then a scramble, right? a power vacuum. Right? Then there was a scramble between his four generals. And in the end, they divided up the regions that was once under Alexander's control into four regions. And just to say that, so accurate was this prediction that it led some scholars raising doubt that it was written several centuries before because, you know, what Daniel had read had come to pass. And scholars, instead of saying, right, this is a clear, this is a clear and, you know, you know evidence of, right, yeah, prophetic, the prophetic coming true, coming to pass. Instead, they tried to revise the position said because they obviously rejected the idea that um, anyone could actually, you know, forecast or could prophesy, right, predict the future. So what they tried to say is no, right? This was written after, or written contemporaneously, but it was not, right? But in fact, right, what has been discovered is that the language, the language that was used by Daniel, right, correspond with the period in which he lived. So that defeat the argument that it was written posthumously or written postscript, right? Yeah? So that is a clear example of prophecy that came true almost to, you know, <laughs> the detail that it was written, right? The unilateral decision of the four generals in dividing up the region conquered by Alexander Right? In some ways, remind me what, what is happening in history. Right? It's always been about conquer, conquest, right? imposing one's will over other people, etc. Right? So it goes back from ancient time right down to modern times. And yeah, I know some of you, may, but it, in some ways, when I read it, one of the first things came to mind is what happened in Berlin in 1882, where a number of the European powers gathered and divided to carve up Africa. Right? Into so right, so it kind of that comes to mind. But I say, but this is not new. This goes back, yeah, far back into history, right? Nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said. Eventually, Judea fell into the hands of a despotic ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes, and to unify his holdings, Antiochus made the people assimilate into a Hellenistic culture. That is like the arts, the language, and even the religion, right? The Greek language became the lingua franca of the day and continued to be the most widely spoken language well into the time of the Roman Empire. This in some ways explains why, yeah, our New Testament was written primarily in Greek, right? Because of this Hellenistic influence, right? And even right down throughout European history, 
right? The Hellenistic culture continued to have a major influence. Even our scientific approach came from Greece, believe it or not. So that's left quite a profound and lasting impact, right, on Western culture and beyond, right? So, as I says, the New Testament was primarily written in Greek. But let me throw this question. Who was perhaps, right, who was perhaps the best-known Hellenistic Jew? Yes, I've heard. Yeah, Paul. Paul, yeah. Paul of Tarsus. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, he was perhaps the most well-known Hellenistic Jew. And you can see why, because Paul was very fluent in a number of languages. So you could see why God had prepared him ahead to be the apostle unto the Gentiles, because he could converse. He understood the culture, right? But he also could engage, right, the Gentile culture, right? Yeah, perhaps better than any of the other apostles who were principally, right, Right, what you could say, right? Um, yeah, Jerusalem, or they were, they were, they were from Jerusalem. They were not from Jerusalem, but they were from um, Judea, which meant that they more or less understood that culture and had, as we have actually um, explored over time, right, had certain kind of apprehensions about engaging Gentile culture. But because Paul was, yeah, from an Hellenistic, an Hellenistic yeah. Background, he was far better equipped than Christ. So God knew what he was doing as he was planning and preparing, right? Paul to be, be the apostle of the Gentiles. In 163 BC, Antiochus banned Jewish religious practices such as circumcision, honoring holy days, reading of the scriptures, the sacrifice of animals, and keeping the Sabbath. He further defiled the Jewish temple in the city by installing an altar to Zeus, as you know, is the principal god in, you know, in the Roman you know, um, sort of belief system. No, sorry, not the Roman, the, the Greek um, belief system. And, right, even went further, just has to kind of offend the Jews, to insult them, to desecrate them, by he actually sacrificed pigs on the altar in their temple. But that desecration, you know, of Antiochus was so severe, was, it outraged a small group of patriotic Jews led by a man named Judas Maccabees. Judas Maccabees is an important, you could say, is an important person outside of the Bible for Christians. And we shall see why a little later on. Another interesting character Right, that you don't hear of in the Bible, but also is important for us to know about, yeah, was an historian called Josephus. Have you got an image of Josephus up there? <laughs> right, okay. Right, Josephus, right, Flavius Josephus. And he recorded an account about the Maccabean revolt. And more importantly, Josephus wrote about the crucifixion and death of Jesus. Now, why is that important? Because many people then claim that the authors of the Bible, right, in many ways fabricated and made up the story, and it's fiction, not based, and there's no kind of, you know, historical perspective that was, you know, 
available from somebody who was a qualified historian. Well, Josephus at his time was one of the most recognized, celebrated historian. And he wrote about Jesus' death and crucifixion. He was the follower of Jesus as far as we understand. But as an historian, he recorded, right, the event. And interesting, Josephus, for a good while, right, was regarded as being somewhat, yeah, making claims that were questionable. But something happened in 1969, right, which more or less transformed Josephus' reputation, right? For a good while, we had read and heard about yeah, a place called Masada. I don't know if you have the image there, Pastor He. Yeah, Masada. Read about Masada. And people thought it was, this place was fictitious. They thought, oh, no, 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 yeah, here we go, Josephus again, right, trying to make a, um, a name for himself, yeah. He is more or less, you know, right, conjured up this idea. But in 1969, archaeologists discovered this place called Masada. And what Masada was about, in 70 AD, just as our Jesus had prophesied, right, the Romans leveled Jerusalem, right, slaughtered, right, thousands of Jews, right, about 70, what we could say, Jewish zealots, yeah, fled to this place called Masada. Now, it's a kind of, um, you know, a mountain, right? And they remained there for, for approximately three years. Now, previously, it was a place that Herod would actually have as one of his retreat, right? But the Jews, those 70 zealots, right, uh, took flight and escaped and yeah, went to actually yeah, occupy Masada. And they were there for three years. Why three years? Because it took three years for the Romans to build a ramp to enable them to gain access to Masada. And what the zealots did, okay, um, <laughs> yeah, we can debate the, the, the ethics of it. What they did, they drew lots. And the ten with the longest <laughs> lot, right, were given, right, yeah, the unenviable task of slaughtering the other 60. Right? And amongst the ten, yeah, one was then who had the longest, or was given, who, who drew the correct lot. To actually slaughter the other nine. Right? Why did they do this? They'd rather die at their own hands than die at the Roman hands. Right? Now, Josephus covered this event, but people thought this event was something that was fictitious. But until archaeologists discovered, and I personally have actually been there, I went there in 86, actually went up there and saw the archaeological remains to confirm just what Josephus. I'd written about. So why am I saying that? Because more and more we are discovering, right, that much of the claims that Josephus made, right, can now be supported 
by tangible evidence, right? And the one that stands out most of all is that outside of the Bible, alongside a number of other important um, figures of literature and uh, academia, Josephus recorded that Jesus actually was crucified and died. He didn't swoon, right? He didn't somehow, right, somebody else took his place. He said, this man, Jesus, right, actually died, right, and was crucified and died, right? So that is why I particularly wanted to share that with you. Say, yes, Josephus, yeah, has a credible record. But Josephus also recorded, yeah, account of uh, Masada. Not, not Masada, sorry. What happened, right, with the Maccabees, right, when Antiochus, right, was the tyrannical ruler, right, in Judea at the time. Eventually, the Maccabeans, just a small group, defeated Antiochus and regained control over the temple. They wanted to worship and practice the faith like they had done for generations. They removed the symbols of Zeus and built a new altar so they could once again offer sacrifices in keeping with the Jewish law. According to a legend recounted in the Talmud, that is the book of Jewish saints, yeah, with ideas, legends, and stories, a miracle happened at this time. There was only enough oil to keep the temple, the temple's menorah, burning for one day. But the flame continued burning for eight days until a new supply of oil could be found. This formed the basis for the eight-day celebration of Hanukkah. And I'm inclined to think that it was not just a legend. And the reason, again, Jesus yeah, being there for the celebration said to me, yeah, it must mean that it was true because obviously we know that Jesus yeah, is, right, has perfect knowledge of all things. So I am yeah, more inclined to believe that it was a miracle of God. It wasn't just something that was created just to make the story sound more interesting and attractive and appealing. Now, I've given you a short version of the story of Annika, but if you wanted to read or you want to find a more detailed account, right? Yeah, I brought an example, right? I'm passing you up. I can show this Bible. You know why, right? Yeah, yeah. Get yourself a copy. I'll get I am reading, right, about the accounts of the Maccabees. There's two books called Maccabees in the Jerusalem Bible, yeah? And as I said, you know, pastor, he passed to rubber, the elders don't actually <laughs> rebuke me for holding this Bible up. And I'll tell you why quickly, right? For a long time, as we know, Britain, um, yeah, still is, is, you know, officially a Protestant country. And this Bible <laughs> is associated with Roman Catholics, right? And it was banned, right, <laughs> for... The best, the best parts yeah, of the British Empire. So, for instance, my two grandfathers were Roman Catholics, but they would never have seen or read right, a Jerusalem Bible because in Jamaica, yeah, it was banned. If anybody was caught, he would face, he would face a prison sentence. Right? Yeah? Okay. But, yes, that's how it was. And in fact, I, I had a previous copy and... Um, I was speaking with some um, 
Rastafarian neighbors who kept saying to me, you know, you know what? The only true Bible is the Maccabee Bible. That's what we refer to in Jamaica, say Maccabee. The only book is the ones with the book of the Maccabees. The um, King James and all those are not. The accurate, those are not, you know, the accurate. Those are not the right Bible because it don't have the book of Maccabees. So <laughs> they used to come by me regularly to just read the book of Maccabees. <laughs> yeah, so that, that was how it was understood and accepted in certain quarters. But I will also say, if you want to kind of get an insight, a further insight into, right, Palm Sunday, then it's worthwhile reading, right, the chapter, or at least chapter, you know, the, the, the first book of Maccabees. Because there you have right, recorded that when Judas Maccabee, right, was a leader of the revolt against Antiochus, right, yeah, when the people celebrated his, the victory, right, what they did, yeah, as the, um, the, 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 those that had participated in the revolt, they would actually have palm trees and wave, right, yeah, joyously, right, to celebrate, to give God thanks, right, for these heroes who have actually, right, overthrown, yeah, Antiochus. Now, all of us, or if not most of us, would recall that on Palm Sunday, we call Palm Sunday, that was where the idea came from. And the people once again gathered, right? Just as how they've been, you know, the people had gathered at the time of the celebration of Judas Maccabee. They gathered again, welcomed Jesus into the city, yeah, with the expectation that Jesus would be coming in to do what Judas Maccabee had done, yeah, 400 years previously, and seek to use military might or start an uprising to overthrow the Romans, right? But as we know, Jesus didn't go left, right, to where Pilate was based. Jesus went right, yeah, to the temple. Right, okay. So he said, did not come, right? Yeah, yeah, to use any kind of violence. Yeah, he's after all the Prince of Peace, right? But if you want to understand the background to that, it's well worth reading or you know, exploring a bit further. And in fact, many of Jesus' followers, including the disciples, probably expected him to follow in the footsteps of the Maccabees and restore the kingdom by a violent military campaign. For a moment, when you imagine the personality of someone like the Apostle John, perhaps Jesus' closest friend during his mission on earth, you would be mistaken to envision this very docile, effeminate figure as painted by da Vinci and other classical artists. Right? However, Jesus described James and John as the sons of thunder which means bold and aggressive, right? They came from Galilee, which was a hotbed of armed resistance against Roman occupation, right? And all the 12 disciples, this is another important point, all the 12 disciples, with the exception of Judas, came from Galilee and probably were influenced 
by ideas of armed resistance against the Roman occupation. So that may have been also what attracted them to Jesus. They see someone coming probably in the spirit of Judas Maccabee, right? And you had someone like Simon the Zealot, right, who was amongst that party, right? Yeah. However, very important, the primary weapon used to secure victory against Antiochus Epiphanes came from the source of light in the temple. And as we know, light represents the Shekinah glory manifesting the presence of God. It was the Lord that was the source of their victory. Subsequently, we're moving on now. Subsequently, rather than holding a military parade to celebrate their victory over Antiochus, they made it a top priority to construct a new menorah. Right? Have you got um, the image up, Pastor Eve? Thank you. Right, that's, uh, yes, we're, we've seen this and it's associated with Jewish faith, Jewish religion. But just sometimes stop to think of where it came from, this eight, right, branch, menorah. Right, so it, yeah, so when you see eight, it represents the eight days of Hanukkah, right? If we had time, we could look at how the menorah with seven candlesticks in the book of Revelation relates to Hanukkah the season of light, but we haven't got time to do that. But the threat of the removal of the candlestick in the book of Revelation, especially in regard to the church at Ephesus, it would possibly cause a Jewish Christian to shudder far more than a Gentile believer because the removal of the candlestick is symbolic of God withdrawing his presence from his people. And as I said before, they knew Two periods where God's voice was silent. The 400 years in Egypt and the 400 years between Malachi Matthew. So the Jews know so when God is saying, right, I'm going to take away your candlestick, where's Christians probably always just going to close down the church? No, no, no. To the Jews it means, right, you know what? It means God is going to be silent and going to be not accessible as we'd like to be. So that would send certain kind of, um, you know, foreboding in a Jewish believer. Right? After the miracle of the light burning for eight days, Anukkah was established. And what are the, there are two major lessons we can learn from, right, yeah, the Anukkah story. First, Jesus observed the Feast of Dedication and Lights. That means it was very important, the fact that Jesus was there. And secondly, Jesus himself was the temple. John 2, verse 9 to 21. Could you get that passage up for me, please? Yeah. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Right. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Okay? All right? And that's the reason why there's not a Jewish temple today. Right? It has served its purpose. You go to Israel, as I said, I've been there, and yeah, there is what's called the Western Wall, right? Or the Wailing Wall, whichever perspective you take. And, you know, Orthodox Jews will go up there and, yeah, with prayer and so forth, because that is the only structure, right, that is part of what is called Herod's Temple. But we as Christians um, know that. Yeah, God no longer dwell 
right? Yeah, in a building. It was in the heart, right, of his people, right? Okay. However, following the victory of the Maccabees, and they had restored the temple, they were also able to rededicate the nation to God, at least for a time. God made their victory and rededication of the temple possible because of the following. Right? And this is the current, this is you know the main focus of our message today. The priests dedicated themselves to serving in the temple. Right? So that's lesson one. Second, they knew it was costly to challenge tyranny. Third, they knew it was necessary. Fourth, they committed 100% to restoring worship in the temple. We are free today because in World War I and World War II, thousands of nobodies, and I say that in inverted, comma, in inverted commas, dedicated their lives and paid the ultimate price to defeat tyranny. As Christians, we belong to a holy priesthood of God. This means we are be dedicated to our calling in Christ. One of the chief responsibilities of the Levitical priesthood was dedicated service in the temple of God. As Christians, we belong to a superior priesthood, the priesthood of Christ, which commands, which demands and commands our dedication in the household of faith. On the first day of 2023, we may find it helpful to personally reflect on the following question. What could truly be said of our dedication to Christ, our great high priest in 2022? So we reflect, right? I'm somebody who likes to reflect. If we reflect back on 2022, right? The most important, the most important question, what was my dedication unto Christ? over those 365 days. Whatever else may have happened. Right? But what was, what was, what and how was Jesus important in my life? Because he is our great high priest. And we are belonging to his priesthood. So what, during that time, was our commitment? Certain of us here have either been managers or been employees. And we know that on an annual basis, we have what's called an appraisal. Pastor B, you know in Hackney, <laughs> they really get onto you about appraisals, yes? <laughs> right? Have an appraisal, right? You and your boss sit down and go through, right, your objectives over the last 12 months. And then your boss has to give, right? Yeah? A mark as to how well you did according to your specific Objectives. Your boss then gives to his or her boss uh, yeah, a similar feedback and it goes right up the chain to the chief exec. Okay, so everyone has to be part of that evaluative process. Right? All of us, right? Yeah, which would serve us well. It would be wise to do some self evaluation. Right? Because the time that has been given to us, Jesus is going to call us to give an account. Right? That for me is the most crucial question 
from 2022. And as we looked into 2023, right, we need to ask ourselves, what is our dedication to the King of Kings, our great high priest? You know, our dedication to Christ also encompasses our attitude and behavior to others in our families, workplace, and neighborhood. Right? There's not a moment when, right, we are, right, not a disciple of Christ. We're not a priest in the household of faith. It's not that, well, when you leave your job, yes, yes, you put on another, right, social hat. We are bond slaves of Christ, as um, Pink Pastor Rob reminded us several Sundays ago. Right? That means the bond servant is a hundred percent right under the authority right of whoever it is that has claim to right yeah their position right there isn't a percentage of it that they have got any kind of autonomy separate from their complete devotion and ownership yeah. To whoever it is that has ownership of them. Right? So, we as believers, yeah, yeah, cannot just coast. We cannot, right, yeah, be lukewarm, half hearted Christians. Jesus gave us a stark warning about a half hearted approach to following Him. Luke 9 62. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Right? Yeah? And in Revelation 3, 14 to 16, and to the angel of the church, that is the leader of the church, the minister of the church, right? That's when he sees the angel. It's not right, an angel from heaven, right? The angel of the church in Laodicea, right? The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either, right? Oh, yeah, hot or cold. Yeah, you were either hot, cold or hot. Right? So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Right? Yeah, this is Jesus speaking. Right? To believers, not to non-believers, to believers, to us, even down to today, every one of us individually, right? and even as a fellowship. Right? So as we go into 2023, let us remember and reflect on what yeah, God requires of us. As Pastor Rob mentioned uh, you know, several Sundays ago, we were redeemed. We were redeemed. We were purchased by the precious and priceless blood of Christ to become dedicated to him. Not just to save and just to wait for our time to go to heaven. Right? He has bought us yeah, with his blood. Right? Two, so that we can become yeah, completely surrendered to him. Right? So let us never lose sight of that. Throughout 2023, let that be our prime focus as we go into the new year. 
yeah? That we are in ownership, full ownership of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And he has rights and authority over every detail of our lives, right? Amen? Let's just pray and, yeah. Lord, even, you know, when I recall hearing the first time the good news of salvation, but the brother that was actually sharing with us at that time as we were, at this, a number of us as young people, over 50 years ago, he told us in no uncertain terms, he says, don't be in any shape beyond any delusion or beyond any illusion, right? Being a follower of you, Lord, is the most demanding, difficult, complex thing you will ever undertake. It's not easy by any stretch of the imagination. Because we are called to deny ourselves daily and take up our cross and follow you, Lord. That is what you call of us who are your disciples, your children, belonging to your priesthood, Lord. But yet, Lord, you have not left us on our own to struggle. You have equipped us by your spirits. You, Lord, have been patient with us when we have fallen, when we have been disobedient, when we have been half-hearted. Forgive us, Lord. Start anew with us, Lord, that, Lord, we become more fervent, we become more committed, we become more dedicated to you and to your calling on our lives, Lord, each one, Lord. And so, Lord, bless everyone here. Comfort those who are grieving, those who are struggling. Reassure those that have got any doubts. Because, Lord, if it wasn't the fact that you loved us, we most probably would not be here today. But because you love and care for us, you got us out of our beds, got us dressed, and enabled us to be here at this moment in time. And so, Lord, we give you thanks. And so, Lord, dismiss us in your peace, in your love, and help us to continue loving each other Right, caring for each other, reaching out for each other, just as our you continue to love us and to care for us, Lord, help us to continue going the extra mile for each other, Lord. Just as our you always, yeah, go far much further than we could ever desire our hope. And Lord, Lord, finally, Lord, I just pray for those. Christians around the world who, unlike us, they were not able to even mention the word Christmas. They could not even say that we are going to celebrate your birth, Lord, for because of what the possible consequences are. At some parts of the world, Lord, they intensified the persecution and surveillance of Christians because they know that for many, most Christians in the world, this is a time we celebrate your birth and they look out to see who is going to celebrate or mention anything or reference to Christ. Lord, they are brothers and sisters, Lord. We just pray, Lord, that you will continue to comfort them and continue, Lord, what right, about to, my life? to remind us in our heart 
to uphold them in our prayer and in any other way that you move our hearts to show love and show care and show sensitivity to their situation. So Lord, depart us in your peace as we humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.